Hi there, welcome along to this week's High Performance Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and information to help you live a high performance life. I can't wait for you to hear what this week's guest has to say, but first, let me just remind you that you can find us on YouTube. Just search for High Performance Podcast and join the thousands of people who've watched millions of episodes on YouTube so far. Um, as well as that, you can find us on Instagram. Professor Damien is at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Humphrey, and we'd love you to follow the podcast at High Performance or check us out online, highperformancepodcast.co.uk. But however you interact with us, however you listen, wherever you're listening, welcome along. I'm so pleased you've chosen to spend some time with us on the High Performance Podcast. And this is the kind of thing you're going to hear this week. Actually, the version of reality that most of us have been taught in school, but certainly I was taught in school, a quite mechanical Newtonian worldview that I would argue the media and our society constantly reiterates to us. Yeah, there's a kind of no space for what one might call magic. Damon and I really enjoyed recording this episode. We're so pleased that you've come along for the ride as well. Um, anyway, sit back, relax, maybe grab a pen and paper in case you want to make some notes because this podcast isn't just about you listening. It's about you really interacting, getting takeaways and enjoying. If it's your first experience of the High Performance Podcast, please subscribe. Feel free to go back and listen right from the start of the very first series. But for now, enjoy this week's episode of the High Performance Podcast. 
It's where they're not just talking a good game, they're actually out there demonstrating it and being prepared to invest time, money and their reputation uh, for something that they really believe in. And that's why I'm really excited to uh, interview today's guest and find out more about that courage that it takes to uh, to live your values in action. Okay, well, let's let's do it then. Let's meet a lady who was on the cover of magazines as a teenager. She's modelled for the most famous brands and fashion houses on the planet. She starred in films, yet throughout it all, she's been clear about her passion for humanitarian and environmental causes. She created Impossible.com, which is an innovative group who are planet-centric. It's well worth checking out their website. She's also just written a book, Who Cares Wins, about getting tough on climate change. And she's spoken about the fact that even doing that and releasing that book... She was concerned about the reaction, yet she still showed the courage to go ahead and do it. So welcome to the High Performance Podcast, Lily Cole. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) So let's start, as we always do, with, in your mind, what is high performance? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like it's about presence. And I'm not saying this on a kind of like, um, I'm not analysing myself in my answer. I'm just thinking about when I see amazing performers whether that's kind of super high level tennis players or amazing actors or, you know, people running companies in a really, really good way, or, you know, there's many, many versions of it. I feel like often it's about presence. It's about putting like a hundred percent of your, your heart and your mind into what you're doing. I think that's what delivers usually the best results. So let's talk then about you putting your heart and your mind into something other than modeling. And we'll talk about your career as well, but there was obviously a moment where you maybe felt, you know, having my photo taken and looking amazing, it just isn't enough for me. I have a voice and I, I want to I want to share that voice. Can you remember when that was? Yeah, I mean, it's not just one specific moment. So it's hard to kind of, um, I guess it's, it's hard to think of like one specific moment. It, it was like a very iterative thing that happened over time uh, that I was really on a journey of learning. I think when I first started modeling, it was at first, it was super exciting. I mean, I was literally a school kid who had never left Europe and always wanted to kind of travel. And suddenly I was like, you know, going around the world and meeting all these grown up creative people and having all these amazing opportunities, making money, you know, which I'd never really made money before or we didn't have a lot of money. So there was a lot of excitement uh, at the beginning. And then over time, I started to, you know, just understand a bit better maybe the impact of what I was doing either because NGOs would contact me with their work and the issues that they were trying to draw attention to or I got involved in a few controversies for well there were a few controversies around companies I was working for and that was a kind of iterative process that as I opened my eyes to the issues I couldn't help but care and want to understand more and and want to see what I could maybe do. So this takes us straight into the conversation then about courage because there will be plenty of people who are in your position who were modelling and they heard about these stories and things and they sort of knew it was wrong. But what perhaps stopped them from taking action was that it would have a personal impact on themselves. And there will be people listening to this in exactly the same position that you were in then, where they have a decision to make. They know it's the right decision, but it comes with risk. So how do you how do you balance that in your head and how do you make the decision or how did you make the decision to, to do something that was risky? Yeah, I think I was aware that it was risky. And um, I remember even my agent at the time, you know, questioning, aren't you biting the hand that feeds you by criticizing, for example, the fashion industry in in certain ways. And I still feel the residual effects of that now. You know, I still feel that um, I probably pissed some people off. And I know I lost some work at the time, but somehow 
the issues that I was trying to understand and trying to talk about felt so much bigger than my personal career. So it didn't feel that hard actually to, I felt like I could, it wasn't a choice. I couldn't, I couldn't just stop caring. You know, I couldn't just, yeah, like switch that part of my brain off. And so maybe I'm just too opinionated, but I couldn't help being vocal <laughs> and caring. And I think maybe I was trying to do it in a humble way. I like not point out people as bad because I realized quite early on how complex all these problems are. And it was, yeah, a process of learning rather than me trying to say what's right and wrong. So can I ask you a little bit about your background, Lily? Because I think that you were doing this, as Jake said, at quite a young age, having this courage to to speak out and challenge convention. Would you tell us a little bit about your relationship with your parents and the kind of lessons that they taught you? I mean, I grew up with just my mum, so I have to kind of credit everything to her in a way um, because she was the kind of biggest influence on me growing up. And she is a very, um, very smart and also very caring person who feels deeply about different issues. Um, she actually just wrote an article last week that we helped publish. It's the first time she's ever spoken out publicly because she felt really strongly about how kind of COVID was impacting on disabled communities because she's disabled. She's very, very private, but that article is indicative of, I think, the sensitivity that she has to, to other people suffering. And that was something I felt impacted me growing up. So how did your mum feel when you first ventured into this world that, that must have been strange for you and her when you at 14 you were offered these amazing opportunities that modelling conferred on you? What, what kind of advice did she give you when she set you off down that pathway? She took me to the first meeting at the modeling agency and I think she was really excited for me. And then in a funny way, um, she, you know, she's a single mom. She was disabled. What I noticed was that my career took off and it almost took her by surprise because she wasn't coming to every job. She wasn't traveling around the world with me. She wasn't really following what's happening. And then just suddenly, you know, a year or two in, she was like, oh, wow, you're actually doing all right at this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to explore what, what your mindset was like at that point because you were you were only a teenager, you were really young. Yeah, it is a it's a big thing to stand in front of a camera to smile. It's quite. Ex I think people that haven't been in that position they don't realise how kind of exposed you can feel at times when you're when you're having your photo taken like that. What was your approach to kind of um, maintaining your own personal strength in that period? When obviously, you know, you were also open to criticism from external people looking at photos of you or going to castings and not being successful. It's hard, I think. Yeah, I think the, the, fine, the, the last point you made is probably the more important one in terms of rejection. I think rejection is something that many, many people have to deal with. But I think being self-employed and particularly being self-employed at you know a teenage age and your work being based on how you look is quite a weird combination of, of factors I write in in my book about uh, kind of reference to the to the fact that when I first started modeling you're given this like big book that becomes your kind of catalog of yourself like a sales book basically they put all the images of yourself and initially when you go to castings you take that book to show the casting director the pictures of you which is such a surreal reality if you think about it that you're literally like your own traveling saleswoman go turning up and you know showing your own catalog of yourself and asking for permission to 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 be liked or be to work so it's a bit of a head fuck i think um by its own nature at the same time i was very lucky that i was quite successful quite early on so i you know i actually didn't have to go to that many castings and with success there's still a lot of rejection it doesn't mean you get every job 
of course it brings up its own levels of insecurity and it's not a done deal but I, I also have to like acknowledge that I was quite lucky and um and in a funny way that luck and success gave me maybe also a lot of confidence it's kind of a bit of a paradox that you have insecurity and confidence at the same time how did you turn the insecurity into the confidence I don't I don't know necessarily that you can turn one into the other they just kind of for me at least coexisted it's a kind of paradox that I had I was given a huge amount of confidence through that work and at the same time there was a kind of underlying sense of insecurity that came with it because I spend all my time I know you're a parent now and Damien you've got kids I spend all my time saying to Flo and Seb my little kids hey external validation counts for absolutely zero okay listen it's about you loving yourself don't worry about what other people think and then there you are at a kind of really quite vulnerable age I think as a teenager suddenly having to go and request external validation to be liked and to be hired and to be used how did you sort of equip yourself with the the armor if you like to deal with the rejection moments what was did you do a bit of self-talk and and think about quite deeply about it did you speak to other people I think in a way, the fact that I was never modeling 100%, I never gave it my 100%. It was um, not in terms of time, not in terms of energy. It was always something that was part-time as a kind of sideline to other stuff I was doing. So, And then I went back to university. I started acting quite young. Then I started businesses. My point is I always had other things going on. And I think that helped a lot because it meant that my reality and my kind of identity wasn't wholly dependent on my success within that industry it was you know that was part obviously of my reality but not all of it but some of the lessons that you would have learned at that young adolescent age Lily have obviously forged you in other careers whether that's going to Cambridge University to continue your studies or whether it's in films or the businesses that you've set up what would you say was the most valuable lesson that you took from that period of your life that you're still utilizing today I think what that chapter of my life did, you know, beyond the fact that it gave me kind of probably access to, to people and ideas and um, financial, you know, kind of a financial level of security that was meaningful. I think the, the big impact it had on me was that it made me really look at business. Um, actually, funny enough, I went to a dinner last night and uh, met somebody and he was asking what I do and I mentioned I just written this book it's like oh how did you come into writing about the environment are you a biologist are you a scientist are you um he knew nothing about my background and I was like actually actually I came into it by being a, a fashion model which I knew was a kind of funny <laughs> answer to give the reasoning is that like if I hadn't gone into that line of work I'm not sure I would have taken the same lens that I have now on trying to understand our social environmental problems, i.e. by working in fashion, I wanted to look instead of just, you know, ignoring the, the kind of business work I was doing and working with charities, I wanted to look at actually the impact of business and the impact of fashion companies, the impact of supply chains, um, seeing them as examples of you know, capitalism more broadly and all the different companies and, and products that may exist. So I think that kind of more economic lens is what I weirdly took from that period. I think what's interesting about that period as well, though, for you is that I'm sort of questioning whether you realise from the people you were hanging around with and the things you were seeing that actually you realise pretty much anything is, is possible. You know, I have a sort of different story to you but I came from a tiny village in Norfolk and I always thought there was a secret to success right people who'd achieved great things and knew something that I didn't know so I'd never get there then I ended up working in Formula One and realized all these successful people just went and did it with a great big satchel of self-belief on their back which 
kind of makes me think that's what you did. You thought, yeah, I can make a difference. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. Do, you me- do you remember getting that insight that anyone can really do anything if they really want to? Yeah, 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 totally. And I actually kind of miss it now. I'm often, now I'm 32, I'm often like trying to get back to my 18-year-old headspace. You're right, it's a product of, you know, probably multiple things, including probably, a, you know, a, a good ounce of, of luck and um, and success. But I also think that youth brings an extraordinary um, kind of ability to be open-minded and uh, yeah, believe anything is possible. And I was definitely in that period of my life, a big believer that anything is possible. I mean, I set up a company for that reason called impossible.com. Um, my university thesis was called impossible utopias. And it was all about how we maybe limit ourselves by predefining what we think is impossible rather than realizing that actually so much is possible and that by believing so much is possible, we will make it true. It will come true. It's more likely to come true. Well, where did that belief come from, though? Because like, this is a question that we often um, explore with our guests, Lilia, around um, your frames of reference uh, are often a big, powerful driver in terms of what you believe is possible. So we had Sir Chris Hoy, the cyclist, come and talk about the Father Christmas syndrome, that if you believe that you're invincible, the day you find out that you're not, all your belief systems come tumbling down around you. So I know you said that it comes from multiple sources, but would you mind if we explore that a little bit more about that belief that anything is possible as opposed to anything is impossible? Yeah, it was, a. I mean, I was, I was a teenager and like probably many teenagers trying to understand the world and my place in it. And, um, and I went through, I think a bit of a journey in those years of, like trying to bridge science and spirituality is basically how I'd put it. And um, having these kind of more spiritual instincts intuitively, and then getting really excited when I started to discover versions of science, particularly like quantum physics. I mean, not, I'm not an expert just to be clear in quantum physics. <laughs> that but, was our next uh, conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but my layman's, uh, my layman's understanding of quantum physics is that, actually the version of reality that most of us have been taught in school, that certainly I was taught in school, a quite mechanical Newtonian worldview that I would argue the media and our society constantly reiterates to us that, you know, cause and effect and everything. Yeah, there's a kind of no space for what one might call magic, but that's actually really outdated. For over a hundred years, scientists, um, particularly in the quantum space, have been showing that actually reality functions in a much more mysterious and strange way um, that we can't really fully grasp yet. And I got super excited when I started digging into that research because it sort of intellectually backed up my intuitive feelings that maybe, as I said, might be considered more spiritual. And I guess that was the kind of driving, the main driving force for my belief that actually so much more is possible than we allow ourselves sometimes to believe and that we create limitations through fear. One of the things that has always intrigued me when I was reading about your career is that it challenges some of the conventions that society, I think, holds that to be successful, you have to be obsessive. You have to just immerse yourself in one particular career and get into the nuts and bolts. And yet you've been successful in a variety of different industries and different careers whilst balancing those demands from it. Some of it links to your last answer of believing that anything is possible, but do you believe that it's possible to be multi-successful in different industries at the same time? 
<laughs> that is such it's such a it's even weird you're asking me that because I've been asking myself that question so much the last few months if I'm being hard on myself I do sometimes feel like I might be a bit of a jack of all trades master of none but that because of the fact that I've constantly been juggling multiple product projects and um, careers in a way I haven't necessarily focused in a way that makes me feel as successful as I'd want to be maybe in one um, and that's something I've been questioning for myself recently of whether I want to focus on something and be a bit more narrow. You've only got a finite amount of time, right, and attention that you can give to anything and, and that projects may suffer if you're trying to do too much at the same time. And the flip side of that argument, and this is my own internal debate, is that I actually really like the kind of, you know, in the Renaissance, the kind of idea of the Renaissance man or Renaissance woman that would have multiple interests. I'm not trying to protect, compare myself to Leonardo da Vinci, but... Leonardo da Vinci, you know, was designing helicopters and also painting and also writing and all these different things. And there was an acceptance, I think, in that era of how actually different interests can complement each other. Um, and that would be my kind of counter argument that actually my different interests speak to different parts of myself and also in a weird way impact each other. So the work I do socially kind of more politically will then maybe impact more artistic projects and vice versa. So are you happy and content? What's your, before I answer that, what's your guys' opinion on that? Like, do you have an opinion on narrow focus versus juggling? The reason why I was going to ask whether you're happy and content is because I have come to the conclusion at 42 that the only barometer for success is that I'm happy. Yeah. And there was a period where I was constantly thinking, yeah, but I need to be, because I would get, let's say I start at zero and I get to four and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm doing good, man. I'm at four. And then I would go on to social media. We can have a conversation about this separately go onto social media and then I'd see someone else at a six and think oh man right shit I try and get there then as I get there I see someone else on a nine and then I feel so I then came to the conclusion that as long as I know that I've done my best and I'm happy and not dissimilar to you Lily feel I'm doing the right stuff I mean we had a conversation with Johnny Wilkinson recently and he said with every decision you make don't ask if it's right or wrong just ask yourself is this helpful or unhelpful and I think if I can live a life where I'm asking myself whether it's helpful or unhelpful then I'm happy. So that leads me back to that question, whether you are happy and content, because if you are, then why does it matter? You can do a million things if you're happy and content doing them. How are you judging success? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a very clever way to, to frame it. I mean, my happiness and contentness oscillates. I'd say I'm pretty happy, but I think I can be happier. And actually, I think COVID and the changes that have happened to all of us in the last few months, for me personally, have really made me, I think, question my relationship to work and the fact that I often have in the past taken on so many different projects, I end up a bit ground into the ground and not happy as a consequence. And I think certainly having a five-year-old kid in my life makes me even more mindful of, of my own um, kind of uh, need to be more a bit more balanced uh, with my work-life balance. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to now, and I'm already doing it, like move into a chapter where I do say no to more things and try and be a bit more streamlined because I completely agree that the best success in life is happiness. It's like one of the hardest, right? But it's, it's the most important one. See, that surprises me that you struggle to maintain that work-life balance, Lily, because there was a lovely story you told in your book uh, when you spoke about you wrote down that parenting contract with your husband and and and, and I know in the book you you emphasized that it was a bit tongue-in-cheek but we love the idea of that you agreed that 50-50 split of taking responsibility for for your daughter 
and and being responsible. No, I, so maybe I'm misrepresenting it. I do think I have a pretty good work life balance. I think I've gotten much better at it. But sometimes it really goes out of kilter. And ever so often, I've just said too, yes to too many different projects, and they all land at the same time, and I get burned out. So, what advice would you pass on to listeners? Like, what are your red flags that you would now recognise that that balance is getting out of kilter that our listeners could maybe learn from? I mean, on a very like pragmatic level, I think time is a really good tool for structuring. For me, it was like saying, "Oh, I'm not going to work on weekends, and I'm not going to work evenings, and these are the hours I'm going to work." And just, of course, there'll be some have to be some flexibility around that. But trying to be more structured, I think, is important. But then I think there's a kind of for me there was like a deeper question, which goes to what Jake was just saying about success, which is. In the past, I've been a real workaholic, and like, where is that coming from? Is it is it actually to make me happy, and is it making me happy? Um, and I think asking those deeper questions, you know, what do you need in your life in order to be happy? I write a lot in the book about voluntary simplicity and that the idea of actually, like, rather than what my friend James Sussman, who's actually just written a book about work, would call the melancholy of aspiration, you know, the four to six to nine Instagram scenario, like, rather than staying on that addiction to to always needing to do better, always needing to have more, always needing kind of a better version of one's lifestyle, resisting that and saying, actually, maybe there's, you know, there's these few things I do really need to, to be happy. And beyond that, I want to free up my time because time is the most important thing we ever have. And by getting free time, I'm more likely to spend it in a way that will make me happy. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's episode of High Performance is in partnership with MindLift, and many of you may have heard already that in 2023, I decided to give MindLift a go, the neuroscience-based personalised brain trainer to improve your focus and your relaxation. So I popped on the headband, I downloaded the MindLift app and connected to my own personal neuro coach. And look, because of my job as a podcaster, I get to experience so many different things that people tell me are going to benefit my life. And in all honesty, once I started using MindLift, I just found that I felt sharper, my focus was better. And I think something else that you can't necessarily feel is that it offers an improvement for overall brain health. I also was really reassured by the fact that this is trusted by clinicians around the world. I know for a fact it's used by top athletes. I've spoken to some of them about how much they love it. And the fact that the whole experience is customised by your own neuro coach, I think just makes it really smart. So if you want to get involved and you're interested, now is the time with a $40 discount exclusively for you. And if you want to get $40 off your first subscription, just go to mindlift.com slash highperformance. That's M-Y-N-D-L-I-F-T dot com slash highperformance. Hey, look, as you know, in high performance, we love to highlight businesses doing things a better way. That's why we're proud to partner today with Mint Mobile. And when I found Mint Mobile, I had to share it with you. They've ditched retail stores and all the overhead costs and passed those savings on to you. 
Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk and text plus data for $15 a month. And for me, those numbers are fantastic. I've been paying way more than that for my whole life. So if you hate your phone bill, Mint Mobile can offer you premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can choose from three, six or 12-month plans. Say goodbye to your monthly phone bills. So to get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com HPP. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com HPP. Additional taxes, fees and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Can we talk about how you deal with um, external criticism? Because obviously you will have had it from a very young age when you really put yourself out there on a pedestal as a model. No, what never. I'm... Never been criticised. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about it then. Because obviously you have. We all have. One of, one of the phrases I try and live with is that criticism is the enemy of creativity the number of times i think i'm going to do something and the little voice pops in my head and goes ah what are people going to think of that now you would have had exactly these conversations because i know that the book that you've just released you had a period where you thought why am i going to write this why am i going to do this and bring criticism my way yet it's the right thing to do so how do we create a mindset where it doesn't matter about the criticism, we're still going to be creative and, and be true to ourselves. Well, it's interesting that point, the, the, the point about the book, because I had actually already written it when that voice came in. So I'd already spent four years writing the whole thing, wow. a lot of work. <laughs> and just literally in like the last, like the last week or two of, of going to the final publication date, I had a real like meltdown about it where I just suddenly thought like, oh, I'm going to probably invite criticism into my life because it's talking about, you know, sensitive topics. And is it worth it? Is it worth bringing that into my life? Like maybe not. And I took a few weeks reflecting on it and pulled myself out of it, mainly because I, in that instance, felt like actually the conversation that the, the book is trying to engage in is bigger than me. And it's more important than whether I'm criticized or not. Like that's why I did it in the first place. And therefore it needs to go out. And if I'm criticized, so be it. I know why I'm putting it into the world. Luckily, Touchwood so far, I haven't been attacked by anyone for writing it. So <laughs> um, hopefully that was ill-founded. I just always do the best I can and on what I'm working on. And, and then it's like out of my hands in a way. So I kind of have a peace with the fact that I did the best job I could. And um, hopefully some people will like it and others might not. So you say, thankfully, I've not had any criticism for the book. Right? That I'm if aware you have, of. That I'm aware of. I mean, okay. Like <laughs> but if you were, if there, if there was criticism and it had thrown itself at you, does that matter? I mean, it shouldn't matter. And I'd like to pretend I'm a superhuman that doesn't get affected by people criticizing. And it depends whether it's constructive or not. You know, if somebody's giving constructive criticism that feels valid and I can learn from it, I'm totally open to that. Sometimes, a few times in the past, I've had people, I don't want to sound victim-y by saying attack me, but almost kind of attack me in a mean-spirited way. And that feels really unhelpful. It feels like reminds me of being like bullied in school or something. It doesn't feel constructive and it doesn't feel like it brings positive, constructive energy into my life. And it feels like it's something I have to, when that has happened, I have to try and almost create my own boundaries around so it doesn't impact my mental health and therefore my family life and my daughter's way of being you know like to try and create a boundary does it affect your mental health i mean it's only happened a handful of times like particularly like nasty um 
criticism has thrown its way itself my way. And yeah, I'd say it's a bit consuming at the time, um, absorbing it and dealing with it. It's like dealing with a toxic person in a way, right? That you have to like, it, it's very hard to not be affected, but, um, but not, I never let it affect me for too long. I just try and like deal with it and then create a boundary and move on. And, and do you mind sharing with us what the criticism was about? Um, there's two examples I can think of. One that was quite publicly well known because it got a lot of media controversy at the time, which is a guy who was critical of the fact that I'd been selected by the Bronte Parsonage Museum to be their creative partner and do a kind of commission for them. And he'd written a blog post about why he didn't think I was a good candidate. And I wouldn't have even really been aware of his blog post, to be honest, um, had it not for some peculiar reason been picked up by the media and then became like, you know, the New York Times, the Guardian, et cetera, writing about it. And when it had to, but I felt like I should write a response. Didn't upset me that much, but it did take, you know, a week of my life digesting, thinking about writing that response and just negotiating. And we only have 4,000 weeks that we're alive on average. So, you know, a week is a decent chunk. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Um, And then there was another one where I was a group of, of women criticized kind of a magazine that I was associated with for the way it was positioning feminism. And it could have been a constructive conversation. It could have been like a constructive conversation where I might have learned something, et cetera, but it was presented in a way that felt that was really just like um, not constructive at all. It just felt like they were just having a go. So, so there's the, the Aristotle quote, the famous Aristotle quote, criticism is something we can easily avoid by saying nothing, doing nothing and being nothing. Mm. So those are the those are your two choices, Lily. Basically, yeah. Which one? Which one appeals? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't think criticism is all bad, you know. And um, that's that's kind of what I was also trying to say. I think there's actually a lot of space for constructive criticism. Of of course, I'm not perfect, and of course, I'm always learning, and I'm always open to hearing other points of view and where people disagree, maybe with choices that I've made or things I've said. Um, if it's done in a spirit that feels generous and open and constructive. I, I really welcome that, but we, our culture is not always kind in the way it delivers criticism. And um, why is that, Damien? Why can't we just allow people to be in their own space with their own voice and their own path? And just if we don't agree, we don't agree. We don't have to tell the world and that person that we don't agree, or the fact that the person that wrote the blog post felt compelled to have an opinion strong enough to write an entire article, and then members of the media felt strong enough about that article to report it in mainstream media. Why can't we just let people be? Well, I actually heard Lily answer this question on a different interview we were talking about before we went on air, where uh, she spoke about bad news travels a lot faster than good. It's stickier. uh, People are more attracted to it. So I think in terms of answering where it's reported, it's often because that kind of controversy, that drama is what attracts us, that, that breaks us out of autopilot. But I think one of the things, and again, I'd be interested in Lily's view on this is, I think what I'm hearing is, this is one of the things we've seen in high-performing cultures when we're talking about it in a slightly different environment, Lily, is people seem to receive criticism and accept it when it's about behaviours, because you can change behaviours, and like you say, you can learn from it. But when it becomes personal, and it's about the individual elements that you can't control, that's where it pierces our armour and starts to feel a lot more wounding to us. And also, I'm sure it goes back to childhood stuff, right? Like I, I said, it felt a bit like bullying and I don't want to go deep into it, but I was bullied as a child. And so it, I think, and I'm sure everyone has their own version of their childhood issues or traumas that sometimes these adult experiences can re-trigger. 
And I think that also plays a part in why it can be hard to deal with it. Yeah. I also think social media has been fairly unhelpful on this point. Not to me personally, because I don't really use it very much. And actually the people who follow me on Instagram all seem to be very lovely and sweet. But um, I think in general, it's created a lot of polarization in our culture. And I think that polarization is not very helpful. And you know, the book I've, I've written and also done a podcast um, connected to the book and I'm specifically trying on every episode of that podcast in a similar format to the way I did in the book to, to invite guests who have different perspectives on a, on a particular topic or issue, because under the framework of this belief in the need for discourse and the belief in the need for debate and conversation, that issues are complex and that it's only through conversation and listening to each other that we'll find solutions, um, trying to fight against polarization, really. There's a really nice quote, um, that's attributed usually to Voltaire, but actually was a, was a woman apparently called Evelyn Beatrice Hall, who said, I disapprove of what you have to say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. And I quite like that as a, as a maxim that we, yeah, should encourage listening more. We've gone the total opposite way. If, you know, what we love to do, you know, the whole cancel culture is stopping people who have a different opinion or have a different voice, not even wanting to hear it. And I think I, I agree with you. That is so unhealthy, isn't it? not to have debate in our lives. And I don't think the only reason for that is social media, but I think that the way social media is designed in terms of filter bubbles, that you you see your people who are like you, um, the algorithms know what you like and show you more and more posts that you're likely to like. Some of the content you'll see is not even true. So I think that has created a kind of perfect storm for polarization, for people being very justified in their position because they're seeing their position being repeated to them again and again and again in different ways in their feeds and not seeing the other side. Can I jump in with a, there's something that's really intrigued me in um, a couple of your answers that you've given Lily, where you've spoken about one of the ways you've dealt with uh, difficulty or that you've developed resilience is this sense of purpose of seeing a bigger picture. So when you spoke about that book and the meltdown you had before you decided to go ahead with it, you said, well, this conversation is bigger than me. You know, when some of the challenges that you described in, in, in other incarnations of your career, what would you describe your mission to be? What are you here to do? I like incarnations of your career. I like that as a phrase. <laughs> I might use that again. Probably increasingly, I realized my mission should be happiness, you know, because that is the most important thing. And I don't think that it's necessarily bad also for the planet. I think that everybody was truly looking for happiness in terms of asking like, what job do I really enjoy doing? How do I really enjoy spending my time? Um, what values in life are really important to me? And answering those questions, I feel like is the most important thing to do because it means that your own life will be more meaningful. And, and I think that would also in a funny way change the world because we wouldn't be doing what we think we should be doing because society tells us so we'd be listening more to our hearts I guess that sounds very cheesy I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago it probably would have been much more external and ambitious but I think it's becoming yeah more a realization of um what what do I really enjoy doing and I actually think for me personally it's a lot about creativity I enjoy being creative and making time for that I think the important thing for people listening though is that it's all about a journey isn't it there would have been a period Lily where you felt like you didn't want to model for a certain brand because it wasn't right, but you didn't say anything because you were young and there was other pressures. And, and then you got to the point where you maybe spoke about it and voiced it to other people, but didn't necessarily act on it. Then you get to the point where you act on it despite loads of outside forces telling you this is crazy. And it leads you right to this point today where 
you're running impossible.com, you're writing books, you're creating podcasts, you're having conversations like this with us. And it is all about the fact that you've finally reached that point where it's about your story, your own happiness, and it's not about the external forces. For people that haven't been through that journey, though, it's a hard one. It's a hard one for them just to switch that on, I think, isn't it? Just from listening to this conversation. Yeah, totally. And it's also a journey I'm still on, you know. Um, I'm not, like, I'm not where I necessarily want to be in terms of what I outlined, you know. I, I'm still on that journey of, of, for, of, I guess, almost fighting different forces and instincts within myself, you know. And my next creative project, of course I want it to be successful. Of course I want some external validation, it's very hard to not have those desires and instincts. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, I'm almost working on myself to realise that the external validation is secondary. So when you find yourself maybe going down the wrong path, what do you say to yourself to get you back on the right path? Um, I find meditation really helpful. I don't do it enough, but I find that um, meditation as a practice is super helpful for me and it definitely helps me be on a good path because you become more mindful of your mind and what you're thinking. When I'm trying to make a decision, I often flip a coin. <laughs> um, doesn't mean I necessarily follow what the coin says, but I quite like it as a way to see my own reaction. And often it will, I'll flip the coin. I'll be like, oh yeah, that is, that is my instinct. That is the decision I, I felt or not. How, how much do you trust your, yourself? How much do you trust your decisions these days? probably not enough I'm quite an indecisive person that's something I struggle with um and I think I've gotten better at making decisions but I still spend too much energy probably doubting choices and trying to decide what about you guys I read a I read a book a while ago um from the CEO of Disney and he said his the soup in his mind his superpower is doing what he believes is right with zero doubt about whether it's the right decision and he finds that that is what that is what works for him, and I've tried I've tried to do the same thing. Oh, cool! It's not it's not easy, but that's my that's my plan. Damien, my strategy has been, and this has been honed over lots of mistakes. Has been I have um, almost like three gatekeepers in my head that I ask myself. Uh, we're going to ask you a question in a minute, Lily, around trademark behaviour. So mine are act with kindness, make sure it's fun and stimulating, and then the third one is can you make a positive difference. And what I've found over the years is when I've ignored those three gatekeepers, I've invariably either underperformed or been quite unhappy in a task that I've done. Mm. So again, it's just learning from the experience of saying, if it, if it meets those three criteria, I'll throw myself into it completely. If it doesn't, I'll, I'll give myself that pause for, for reflection and decide whether I'll go ahead or not. I think in a way, um, to you, I was thinking about the Disney example, the, the, my indecisiveness is probably also a consequence of the fact that I always try and see different perspectives. I almost caution against me feeling 100% sure of, a, of an opinion or a decision because I'm always open-minded to, to the nuance or to the debates. It's probably a bad side effect of, um, of trying to be open-minded. <laughs> so how important is taking counsel for you? And when you want people's opinions, where do you turn? I definitely take a lot of counsel. Um, my sister, first and foremost, who's just endlessly generous with her with her time um, in giving me advice. Um, my mum often gives me advice. And then I've got a kind of group of close friends and family that I turn to. I guess, I guess probably like less than 10 people who are like close family and friends who I would go to for advice. And what's been the most valuable piece of advice that you've ever received from that group? 
<laughs> Do you know what is a funny answer? My daughter started giving me advice. She's only five. She'll start going, don't worry, mum. Worrying is silly. Don't worry. And I've started really tuning into all of that. And I'm just like, wow, you're really right. <laughs> <laughs> but there is some magic, though, in the innocence of children and the way that they approach stuff. Totally. I think that is, a, that is not a bad place to go for advice, you know? A hundred percent. I mean, if, we, if we're going back to the idea that success is happiness, I mean, five-year-olds, I think, have to do a much better job in general of being incredibly happy and incredibly present, at least my daughter does. And so I think I have a huge amount to learn from that, for sure. I love that one. Um, I, can we just talk a little bit, actually, about your, your daughter? Because we've spoken about you want people to follow their intuition. We've spoken about how you want them to find the magic in the world. Yet at the same time, all three of us having this conversation know the day comes where you realise the world is not perhaps all it seems and there is poison out there and some negativity and you do have to be braced against it. So how are you bringing up a child who looks for the magic and follows their intuition and is free but cautioning against what they might find in the future? How do you get that balance right? I don't, I don't have a kind of conscious um, strategy for it. So um, I'm just kind of doing it based on, I guess, instinct at the time. But I would encourage her natural state of curiosity. And in a way, her understanding, I would assume that anything is possible. Because when you're that young, your possibilities haven't been defined yet. And, you're, you know, Santa Claus can be real or fairies can be real. And, you know, anything in a way is possible. So allowing for the magic, I think, is really important. I think we have a lot to learn from that mind state. And then also being sensible about risk, right? And talking about and not, not giving her like fear narratives of the future at all, but just, you know, giving her sensible understandings of risk, whether it's don't run across the road or spelling out certain dangers that I could see might be in her horizon now, but I'm definitely not like anticipating future negativity scenarios for her because I don't think that's very helpful at all. I think it's a Carhill Gibram quote where he says, children are the arrows that your bow sets forth. And it's this idea that you don't own them and it's not right necessarily to like try and turn them into mini versions of yourself and project all of your, your ideas of right and wrong and how the world works onto them. And I think that's the balancing act that I try to do is to give guidance whilst really respecting that my daughter is a unique human being separate to myself, that it's important that she has her own space to go her own way and make choices that are potentially might be different to my choices. I'm for the most part vegan. And I tried to explain to her why I make those choices and um, and teach her a little bit in not a scary way about kind of you know, the, you know, the circumstances around um, different types of meat production without like 100% imposing what she can and can't eat on her and giving her the space and freedom to, to make her own choices in, in that landscape. Is that not an echo of what your mum did with you of letting you go down a pathway of a world that maybe she didn't understand but allowing you to uh, to go in and explore yeah, I think so, actually. Yeah, she's she gives me her opinions strongly and always gave them growing up, but she also, and tells me when she disagrees with stuff, but also does give me space, I think, to, to find my own way. Have you heard of the phrase helicopter parenting? Yeah, I have. That's like when you kind of micromanage, right? Like you're always like, on top of them. Yeah, yeah. Hover around them. 
how are you with allowing your daughter she's young but allowing failure to try and build resilience i have a real bee in my bonnet about the fact we're not creating young people that understand failure is a good thing they have no resilience they start out on their own path they struggle and give up because they've never learned that it's okay to struggle and carry on i mean she's five it's not even like it's not even part of our rhetoric success or failure she's just playing you know <laughs> but do you allow if you play a game do you allow her to lose to you or does she always win it's really like we don't actually play many win losey games or like do like chasing down the street and who wins um yeah and i don't over i don't overthink it you know like probably more often than not we'll let her win because it's more fun but it's not like she has to win i think she's quite in, she's quite easy going about it so yeah it hasn't it's the success failure thing hasn't really been an issue and how are you with failure oh my god i used to be terrible with failure i used to be like really 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 not able to deal with it because it was it felt like my whole sense of self was being undermined and then actually interestingly realized that success is happiness as we're saying and that you learn through failure and you know the kind of beckett line fail fail again fail better is is really important um that often if especially if you're trying to do something um ambitious which i have tried to do in the past often you will meet failure and and you have to just keep trying because it's only by trying again that you'll learn and at some point maybe have a sense of success the challenge for that damien when we talk about fail early fail often fail forwards the only way to learn that is to fail and when you start failing and you haven't learned it that's when it gets very difficult well there's that lovely saying that we've repeated on the podcast of a mistake is only a mistake until you repeat it so you try something if it doesn't work out if you make if you do it again and it doesn't work out then it's a mistake but until that if you if you're taking it and learning and being a bit smarter next time it by definition it can't be a mistake yeah, although I agree with you, and I like that quote, but the Samuel Beckett fail, fail again, fail better would say that we've got to just keep making mistakes and every time maybe the mistakes will get slightly slightly smaller. <laughs> yeah, and that's the idea, yeah. though, that, that it's a constant learning process as long as you reflect on it rather than deflect it. That's where, again, you're coming back and, and, and you're honing it until eventually you get there. Can we go back to the question about your tribe, how you recruit people, what you want the people around you to be like, and I'm also very interested in how quickly you will cut people off, remove them <laughs> when they're not the right people for you, because that can bring an unnecessary poison into one's life. And when you say recruit, you don't mean from a business perspective. You mean no, I mean like you know, like your yeah. Yeah, yeah. How do you decide who you want in your in your world? There's only so many seats on the bus. Is one of my phrases, and you know people come and go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I find it's a fairly organic process. Um, it kind of happens naturally, right? That, I mean, I'm lucky that I spent most of my adult life in very social circles because I work in lots of different industries and I'm quite, I don't know, as connected to like social net, social scenes and, like, and quite diverse groups of people. And I love meeting interesting people and having interesting conversations. And it happens quite organically that if I meet somebody and find them interesting, I will then want a bit more of them in my life. And and it will happen organically that they'll drop out or they'll stay in my life. You know, it's kind of, I don't overthink it. I think there's kind of a core group of people who are like some of my best friends that have been best friends for a very long time um, that have, you know, seats at the front of the bus. <laughs> but even sometimes, and it's sad when it happens, but even sometimes I've found, you know, that some of my best friends shift out of my life in the past. And it's something I have to kind of accept and understand. We go through different phases, I think. Um, what do I look for in my close tribe? I'd say people who are fun, have a sense of humor is really important. 
and honest and kind, just grounded real people who I know have my back and I can have a laugh with. And if I'm worried about an issue, I can call and vice versa and have honest advice, you know, coming from a good place that I think is the most important. And what is the kind of behaviour that you would make a swift decision about removing that person from the bus? (laughs) I think just sometimes you, you, like, if you feel like a relationship is not giving you anything, you know, if it's maybe sometimes taking more than it's giving, that's when I've been like, actually, I don't need this energy in my life. And I think particularly when I had my daughter and I became much more, I guess, guarded with my time because my time became very precious time. I'm not spending with her, with other people. I'm not spending with her. You know, I think that's when I started to, I saw some people drop out of my life who I felt were just maybe taking more than they were giving energetically, if that makes sense. What about you? Who'd you kick off your bus? Um, My very simple tool is, are they a fountain or a drain? And if they're a drain, um, I, I, I will remove them pretty quickly. And I think as I've got older, I've sort of come to the understanding, because when I was younger, I thought that if someone was your friend, they had to be your friend forever. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was like a really bad thing to drift apart or to not make an effort. I'm quite fatalistic. So I think people come into your lives for a reason. I think they probably drift out for a reason as well. And when they come in, you allow them in and you, you spend a great time together and you don't think too much about it. But then you also have to do the same thing when people slowly drift out and you just thank someone somewhere for the fact that they came in at a certain time and gave you something and then you don't mourn too heavily the fact they're not around any longer I totally feel that way that yeah like I used to have a more childish sense of like best friends forever and and there are some friends in my life I hope are my best friends forever um that I have very meaningful relationships with but I think I have made more peace with the idea that you go through chapters and that just because you're only close to somebody for a few years and then you drift apart and then you might see them occasionally it doesn't undermine the friendship you had at that time on a previous uh, podcast interview we did, Lily, with uh, a Dutch footballer called Robin Van Persie, he spoke really quite powerfully about how he'd had that childish sense of his friends were going to be with him on the journey forever. And uh, he identified that some people are with you for seasons, reasons, and some will be there for lifetimes. And mm-hmm. he was really quite elegant with mm-hmm. uh, the way that he spoke to some of his friends and said, you know, I love you and I'll always love you, but this is the end of the journey together now. You have to go your direction. I wow. go mine. And yeah, I thought That's it was really... Heavy. Like breaking up with friends. Yeah, I think there were circumstances that had caused it, but he was really quite yeah. elegant in the way. I'd, like I really admired the grace with which he did it, uh, the way he described it to us. I also love, I mean, I love interesting people who have a maybe uh, like a different worldview that I can learn from. I try and keep friends that have maybe different political instincts to mine similar to the kind of ethos of the podcast and book you know that I like to um not just have people who are identical to myself and have a kind of diversity of 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 thinking around me and I'm also stay really open to meeting new people so um I moved house last year and I made really good new friends in that area and I've just moved again and I'm already like starting to like see you know who I might uh friends of friends that I might connect with in this area And I like keeping that same openness that I had in my 20s of being open to new people. Well, I think the diversity you talk about is really powerful in your book, if I can can reference it, you know, like the range of people that you speak to, um, I found really fascinating, you know, from the likes of Elon Musk, where you were speaking about to guys like that, right, the way through to some of the guys in Botswana, 
where you tell the story about going exploring it out there. And I think, again, it's an evidence to me of your values in action. You say that you would like diversity and yet your book gives really quite ample evidence of that. I keep using this phrase around you about your values in action. And yeah. I feel like I'm almost imposing what I think your values are. And what I, do you I, think my values are? <laughs> I think there's something about fairness. I think there's something about curiosity. And I think there's something around uh, decency and integrity are what I'm imposing on you, but I'm conscious that I haven't asked you if you'd articulate them. Yeah, no, I think that, I think you got it. I think you got it pretty well. Um, and I would also add kindness. I think kindness is really important. You know how sometimes we feel like we can't impact the world, yeah? It wouldn't it be great if we said, right, all I'm going to do is spread total happiness into the small circle mm. around me with the contract that all those other people in that circle agree to do it with their circle. <laughs> I'm only going to make them happy if they sign a contract that they'll make other people happy. <laughs> they don't have to sign it, but <laughs> they will be in trouble if they don't do it. But isn't it like just by... T- just by doing that very very quickly everything would become about doing the right thing and we we feel we can't change the world but i sort of think we can you know i totally agree and that's almost what i was saying earlier about a mission being happiness and it's easy for that to sound selfish but actually i don't think it is selfish because i think that it's so easy and i've seen many kind of well-meaning activists do this and i'm sure i've done it myself in the past where you try and change the world in a big external way but you're so stressed and caught up in the problem and the negativity of the problem that you're actually bringing maybe stress and fear to the people in your kind of immediate circle. And I think actually maybe what's more important is a, is a much humbler approach to, uh, if you're going to think about your impact on the world, a much humbler approach of like, actually what is the impact I'm having on the, the small circle of people that I'm interacting with? And also the people I see every day, you know, like the people you walk past in the street, there's a great term for that, Lily. They call it pronoia. So rather than be paranoid, be pronoid, and rather than believe everyone's out to get you, have the view that everyone's out to help you. And then it's residual, right? Because if I'm then being slightly nice, you know, like not in a ridiculous way, but you know, like just letting people pass or cars pass and smiling or saying hello, you know that they might do that too. And and that actually, if, if a lot of us did that, we'd probably find that things would shift pretty quickly. I totally agree. Why? When are we going to realise that only good things come from being good to people around us? Hopefully one day. If you read Lily's book, you may well take a step closer to that. <laughs> uh, Lily, we're just coming towards the end of our really enjoyable conversation. We have a few quickfire questions. Sure. Can we throw them your way? Yeah, go for it. This one always stumps people. Three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into. Honesty. Integrity. Humour. Well, I wouldn't not let somebody be in my life because they're not funny, but I think it's an important one, fun. Yeah. How important is legacy to you? I think it's really important, but it doesn't have to be in a like, like a famous way. Like I don't need to have like a plinth or something. It's more about feeling good about my impact on the world. What advice would you give to a teenage Lily just starting out? Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. Try and enjoy the ride. <laughs> I know we asked this question earlier in the interview, Lily, but I'll ask it again. Are you happy? Ah, I mean, it's not, I don't think happiness is a binary thing. Um, I would say on a scale of like zero to 10, I'm probably an eight today, seven, eight. So it could be happier, but definitely in the upper, upper end of the scale. Good. I'm glad this interview hasn't bumped you down any. 
<laughs> well, I was on a nine when we started, actually. But... <laughs> I'm joking. And finally, for people listening to this, um, it's all about takeaways. It's all about them just being challenged. What's your one golden rule to living a high-performance life? And by the way, high-performance can be anything you deem it to be. Stay curious, I guess, because the curiosity drives enthusiasm and the enthusiasm drives the work. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Not dissimilar to Johnny Wilkinson's answer about explore. Mm. Live a life of exploration. Livia, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, super interesting. Thank you. Damien. Jake. Well, look, I really enjoyed that. And it reminds me of um, the fact that you've got two choices in life. You can either put yourself right in the middle and go for it or you can stand on the edge and snipe and criticize and lily is certainly the former not the latter yeah but look when we knew we were going to sit down with her i was telling a friend of mine that we were going to chat with lily and um we both read the book the who cares wins that and uh she described her as an old soul which i thought was a really great description of somebody that is reflective that's lived a rich full life in the 32 years, but she's been, she's had that innate curiosity to try and understand the world that, that she inhabits rather than just existing within it. And I think that came through in terms of the fact that she was asking us questions and challenging our thought process as much as we were asking her says something uh, really powerful about, about her and the way that she occupies the, her place in the world. And we spoke a lot about, existing in a world where people are very ready to offer you their criticism but if you break down everything that she that she spoke about really today all it was about was finding your set of beliefs making sure you regularly challenge those beliefs and sharing as much of those beliefs with your own circle as possible in a really positive giving encouraging embracing way now if we all adopted that school of thought whether you agree with what lily thinks or whether your mindset is totally different if we adopted that school of thought then the world would be so much better and nicer and warmer and fuzzier. Definitely. And I think there was something around uh, her message for anyone that is listening to this and thinking, how can I change my team or my business or a wider organisation that I'm involved in? And I think the point is don't try and boil the ocean. Just try and make a difference in where you are, where you stand and, 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 and who you come into contact with. And I think there's a big message there for anyone listening to this that don't try and change the world, just change your own world and the world immediately around you. Brilliant. Another enjoyable episode, Damien. Thanks so much. Well, Damien, the reaction to the Eddie Hearn episode from last week uh, was remarkable. Um, look, whether it's Lily Cole, who we just heard from, whether it's Eddie, whether it's Stephen Gerrard, one thing we're learning is that everyone has a different route to their own version of high performance, don't they? Yeah, and I think that's been a really powerful point that a lot of people have understood that we're not offering an answer, a formula, um, a certain set way of doing it. I think everybody's got to find their own way. And I think if these podcasts can get people thinking and reflecting, that's success. There's a really nice message we've had in actually, Damien, that links to that point. Um, and it says, uh, it's from Kieran Joyce. And he says, excellent episode of the High Performance Podcast with Eddie Hearn, a top class interview on sticking to a process of hard work, staying positive, and most of all, having a passion for what you do. And it, you're right, everyone does have a different way to get where they're going. But I think the, the things that stand out every time is passion and hard work. People that really love what they're doing, because I think the hard work naturally follows on from loving what you're involved in, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think that passion 
gets you through those sticky bits in the middle. There's an author called Ben A. Brown talks about the messy middle of any journey that we're always on. There's always a bit where you're too far to go back, but you're not far enough to get to the end. And I think what gets you going through those difficult stages that everybody faces is that passion and that desire to just enjoy what you're doing and focus on those small steps. And that's been consistent, whether it's Steven Gerrard talking a few weeks ago around those difficult moments that he's experienced in his career or Lily Cole having the courage to challenge the fashion industry that she was in as a as a, as a young model. I think, you, you, Damien, you're totally right, as always. Um, I'm just going to go through a few of the comments. You'll love this one. This is from Ricky Cooney, 82, and he just gets in touch to say, fantastic, the unintentional education given to listeners is immeasurable. The unscripted answers by some of the elite on this podcast are liberating. They demonstrate that they're human, grounded, they cry, and they bleed. This is what I love. My 13-year-old son even makes notes. Now, I've sort of chosen carefully about the bits that I share with my children, Damien, who are five and seven. But there is definitely something in sharing this stuff with your kids or your nieces or your nephews, the young people in your life. Because I don't think you're ever too young to realise that you can make a difference. You can be special. You can achieve whatever you like. Yeah, I think it's really powerful. I've used it, uh, especially with my son, who was 11. Um, We had a really interesting conversation when he got his first phone and he was talking about signing up to social media apps and I I sat down with him and got him to research Dina Asher Smith and then listen to her answer when we asked her about that question. So yeah, I think if you're judicious about it, I think getting kids to listen to this and realise that these high achievers are not on a different level than any of us. They've all started at the same place and some of the lessons that they learned can be applied at any age. And um, let me tell you a quick story. There's a Crystal Palace fan site called HLTCO, which stands for Hopkins looking to curl one. And over the past few years, they've incessantly come at me for my for my work on the television or for my tweets or for whatever. You know, because if I ask a question about a footballer who they really love and I'm asking a question that might be seen as negative or I'm questioning that player to one of the pundits, I think I'm just doing my job. They think I'm biased against their team. So... The HLTCO just was sort of calling me out on social media. It did definitely impact me a little bit. Then they put up a message this week saying, I need to mention Jake Humphrey. I got him totally wrong. I've been listening to every episode of his podcast and it's totally changed my view of him. And we actually exchanged private messages on Twitter and they admitted that maybe they were a bit immature. Maybe they didn't quite understand things. And that is something that I think is so important about this podcast is that we're all forming our, most of us are forming our opinion of people in the public eye or people who've been successful from what we've seen rather than really knowing them. And this message that we had from Paul Taze, who was listening on Apple Podcasts, he said, beneath the flash exterior and bravado, Eddie Hearn is seriously driven and accepting of 100% responsibility. No passion, no point. I love it. I love the High Performance Podcast. Thanks for that, Paul. But I think that's the point with this pod, is that we're not just covering the same old cliches and the same old conversations and just kind of scratching a little bit at the surface. Both of us noticed that about 15 or 20 minutes into our conversations, the bravado, the front disappears, and we actually get to the person, don't we? Yeah, every time. I think that's been what's been really interesting about it is that one of the features of a high performer is they don't get stuck in a certain way of thinking. They're, you know, like the episode we've just listened to there with Lily 
where she was asking us as many questions as we were asking her. What do you think? What information do you have that I can take on board and maybe reframe the way I'm already uh, perceiving the situation? And that example you give about that Crystal Palace site is really pleasing just because it's made them think that they've actually taken the time to listen, reflect, and then had the grace to accept that maybe I was wrong, maybe my initial judgment wasn't accurate. And that is a healthy trait of all high performers. The ability to learn and unlearn is what distinguishes the elite. And it reminds me of a a phrase that my dad used to use a few years ago. Um, And he used to say to me, Jake, or Jacob as he calls me, Jacob, hold your beliefs lightly. And I didn't get it at the time. I was thinking, Dad, no. In life, you have to really, you know, that old phrase, stand for nothing, fall for everything. I used to listen to him and go, no, it's a nonsense. Hold your beliefs lightly. What are you talking about? I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly how I'm going to get there. And I'm going to make sure that the seven steps from here to there are the ones that I'm going to take. And only by doing this podcast do I realise that hold your beliefs lightly is absolutely right. It's not hold your values lightly. You've still got to have your values, have your approach, have the way you live. But I guess what I've started to hold lightly is how I'm going to get there. Absolutely. I think that's such a beautiful, graceful phrase that hold your belief lightly because it taps into the idea that the illiterate of this century aren't those that can read or write. It's going to be those that can learn and unlearn because change is happening at such a pace that if you're holding on to old views that are outdated, that you're almost like howling at the moon. You find yourself still sort of playing Betamax videos uh, in a world of digital technology. I think this ability to go back and refresh our thoughts and our beliefs is, as I said earlier, a trait of all high performers that we've seen. Wonderful. What a nice way to finish. Um, And thank you to all the people that got in touch as well over the last week. Basically, just to say, Monday morning when the High Performance Podcast drops, I make a vow to listen to it and then not moan and to be responsible and to be positive and to make the most of my week. Um, As always, Damien, thanks so much for sharing your time with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jake. I love it. Top man. Right, you have a wonderful week, Damien. Um, You as well. Please really dive deep into the High Performance Podcast. Go back, listen to previous episodes, challenge yourself. Don't hold your beliefs lightly. Take responsibility and have a brilliant week. Um, A big thank you, of course, to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio for all of his hard work. The amazing Will O'Connor, who works with us as well, is also exceptional. We couldn't do it without him. There's a whole team of people involved in this pod and all of us just want the same thing, to help you live a high-performance life. Don't forget, check us out on YouTube. Check us out on Instagram. Check out highperformancepodcast.co.uk. But just make sure that you take responsibility and you have a brilliant week. Thanks very much for listening. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.